But let's dive in uh, to what I believe God has for us today. Um, so when I was a kid, I tried a, a bunch of different sports. Some stuck for a few seasons, like uh, football, basketball, tennis. Some, you know, not so much. Track, soccer. I, I hated running. It's terrible with my feet. But there is one sport that, that stuck with me um, from elementary school all the way to college, and that was table tennis. <laughs> table tennis, or as commoners call it, ping pong, all right? <laughs> ping pong. So as I, I had a table, I would not, first off, I would not say that I was ever obsessed with it, right? But I liked it, and I played a lot. I, I, I had a table in my house, in my church, I learned to put various spins on the ball, right? And in middle school, I even bought my own paddle, right? The kind similar to this one with thick rubber on either side so that you can grip that ball and get whatever spin. And yes, I know your next question, I did buy a case, a zip-up case for my paddle. Yeah. So for, for the most part, I assumed I was, I was decent, right? I thought I was better than most until I went to college and I met a fellow student named Komi from the country of Togo in Africa. And see, I first heard about Komi when I was playing with some of my friends, and they said, have you played Komi yet? No. All right. Well, one day I finally got the chance to play Komi. And I still, as I remember the scene, he was walking up, and it was like slow motion. <laughs> and I pulled out my rubber paddle on both sides, and he, I don't know, grabbed some cruddy paddle he found off the floor. And I was like, okay, already advantage me. <laughs> and then I, I was ready to go. I, held, I hold my paddle kind of upright like this. But Comey took his paddle, flipped it around like this, right? I was like, that's kind of weird, whatever, let's play. But what felt like 60 seconds later, the score was 21 to 1, <laughs> right? I scored I scored one point. That's something, right? Talk about humbled. Talk about humbled. And I come to find out later that, that Comey had actually won national competitions in his home country of Togo. And he could have gone to play internationally if there was actually money in it. If there was actually money in it. But all that to say, all he had to do, while I was feeling all right about all my chances, all he had to do, when I thought I had all things figured out, he just flipped his less-than-average paddle upside down and humbled me. And today, in our final message in this series, we're going to learn from a guy that many of you guys you heard about before from the New Testament named Paul. He used to be referred to as Saul. Saul assumed he had a whole lot figured out. He was a top of his class, expert in the Old Testament, mentored by a top rabbi. In a world run by the Romans and culturally saturated with Greek ideas, Saul saw it as his job to defend the walls of orthodoxy, going as far as arresting or even murdering members of this foolish new sect following this guy named Jesus. But one day, that Jesus encounters Saul on the road to Damascus. And in that moment, it's like Jesus flips upside down everything that Saul thought he knew and humbles him, humbles him. From that moment on, instead of you reading him referred to as Saul, he's referred to as Paul, which means small or humble. 
then Jesus begins a powerful work through Paul that would change the world. But before any of that could happen, Jesus had to confront Paul's prideful heart and turn upside down all that Paul thought he could trust. And as Paul later explains in a letter to a bunch of Christians in the city of Corinth, what really did that for him was the revelation of the cross. And for us, the same extraordinary God who did things through Paul, you realize he's with us too. He's with us. But first, do we know why the cross flips upside down everything we think we know? And not only that, but, but do we understand how it's meant to change us? The reality of the cross changes us. So let's begin with Paul's words. How does the reality of, the cro- of Christ crucified change what we trust, how we see ourselves, and how God can use us? So we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we're going to read from verses 18 to chapter 2, verse 5. If you have one of those blue Bibles in front of you, it's page 924. 924, and it's, or it's on the screen. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting at verse 18. Again, this is Paul speaking to the Corinthian Christians. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs, Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many were noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, it is written, let no one who boasts, or let the one who boasts, excuse me, boast in the Lord. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you. I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom, as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. May that be, God. So that your faith might not rest in human wisdom, but on God's power. Everybody say God's power. Lord, as we open your word, help us understand. But at the same time, I recognize that as Paul said here, God, that the reason why we believe, the reason why we can see, is because your Holy Spirit has revealed this to us. 
the truth of who you are and the truth of Christ. And so, Lord, we know that any of us who have faith in this room, it's not because we figured it out, but because you revealed it. And so may your spirit reveal it again. We open up ourselves to you. Come, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So there's a world-renowned New Testament scholar. His name is Gordon Fee, who says of these words we just read, he says, the, this is truly one of the great moments for Paul's writing. Why? Because they encapsulate who he was, his ministry, his message. But I can, I can get it, right? If we're reading this, and all, and all of a sudden, all these words just started jumbling around in your head, and it's like, I have a hard time following his argument, you're not alone. Right? Wisdom, foolishness, cross, Christ crucified. Right? Even those familiar with Paul's letters, you got to slow down to try to get it sometimes. So, just to start, what is Paul trying to say, at least in this first section? What does he want us to get? Well, let's start here. If we trust in human wisdom or power to save us, the words Christ and crucified make no sense together. Paul exclaimed, we preach Christ crucified. But we forget today how controversial that was at the time. This was at the center of his message. So we today as Christians, we hang crosses on our houses and our church and our bodies right everywhere. We don't think twice about it. But in the first century, Christ and crucified together sounded crazy. The word Christ is the Greek word meaning anointed one or chosen one, a title given to dignified kings or appointed rulers. The Hebrew word for Christ is Messiah. Messiah, which the Jews spoke, when the Jews used that word, they spoke of a conquering savior, a military hero who would bring God's righteousness and justice to Israel. But crucifixion? Like that was the ultimate tool of defeat and public humiliation. It was Rome's tool of public torture mercilessly enforced across their occupied lands to intimidate anyone who tried to challenge their dominance. So when Paul put together these words, we preach Christ crucified, that sounds like an oxymoron, like boiled ice or frozen fire, right? Two opposites coming together. So for Paul's main audience, that was the Greeks and the Jews This sounded crazy. But in all of this is still the genius of God. Because the tension of Christ crucified is meant to challenge what our hearts trust to save us. See, the Jews and the Greeks may have differed in a bunch of different ways. Religiously, culturally, ethnically. But Paul says they could agree on one thing. The cross was offensive. Why? Because it's the very opposite of what our human, prideful, self-reliant hearts trust. For example, if we look to human strength or power to save us, the cross is shamefully weak. And Paul says this was the perspective of most Jews in his day. And to understand the Jews, you've got to understand something about their history. Understand something about their history. Because their mighty God delivered their forefathers from slavery in Egypt with signs and wonders made made for and made them his people. And so in their minds, that's what God did before. 
And if God could come in signs and wonders in Egypt, then he can do the same in Rome. So they expect a Messiah to also come, like a military hero who will kick tush. Yes, tush, it's church. Kick tush, take names, and set up God's kingdom on earth. And that, in their minds, that's salvation. That's salvation. Thus the Jews, when Jesus showed up, they insisted that he show them a powerful sign from heaven to validate his messianic credentials. Isn't it interesting how often we want to turn to God and we want to try to shape who he is in, with our expectations? We often want to make God into the image that we think he should be. But for the Jews, a cross, that just meant somebody was cursed by God. Christ crucified is blasphemy. I mean, that's exactly what Paul thought, which is why he went around rounding up Christians thinking he was doing a good thing. But let's get back to our context here. Even if we believe that cross and we sing about the cross does it shape us have we allowed the reality of christ crucified to challenge the ways that we might idolize human strength or political power because pride wants to work work to convince us that we can be strong enough or capable enough to rely on ourselves or save ourselves or get us to that place the cross want, like but the cross is weak how do we make sense of that it begins to challenge the very thing that we trust to save us well, that's one example but second if we look to human wisdom or innovation to save us then the cross is utter madness. And Paul said this was the perspective of many of the Greeks in his day. Because remember, the Greeks were the learners. They were the philosophers. They were the innovators. And it was the Greek view. Uh, their, their view of salvation was not eternal life. Their view of salvation was that you and your family are going to find a happy, healthy, and wealthy life together. That sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? as the goal of many in our day-to-day. Well, how are you going to get there to that happy, healthy, wealthy family in life? Well, education, achievement, human wisdom. That was the thing they trusted to bring about that salvation. And for them, who's God? Well, for the most part, they had, once they began to have all these achievements as a society, they left behind all the Greek gods, and they began to view God, at least in the time of Paul, more as like the detached unfeeling being, almost like a giant brain. Imagine like a giant brain. And so for them, when we talk about God coming into our world and suffering, that was wild. That felt crazy to them. But for us, we have to ask as well, do we only trust in God when it makes sense to us? Do we only Do we try to put God in a mental box? Do we try to say, God, this is who you are. I can only believe as much as I can understand. If so, have we not idolized human wisdom too? Do we think that we can reason our way to belief in a God who is well beyond? 
You know, even looking at all this up here, I wasn't planning on using it as a prop, David, but here we go. Looking at all this up here, like, you remember, some of you remember that day when they first landed on the moon, and they're like, go human beings! One step for man, one giant leap for mankind, right? Like, we're awesome! Look what we've achieved! But if we're not careful, we can begin to look at our achievement, our wisdom, our accomplishments as the vehicle, the very thing we trust to save us. And if we do, then why do we need the cross? But if you, for at least for a moment, recognize, okay, I'm not, I have trust in human wisdom, I have trust in human strength, but I'm just going to listen to this message of the cross for a second. If you truly do listen, something happens. And if you ask God to show you what this is, he'll show you that it was at the cross that Christ even though we thought we knew something, flipped that ping pong paddle upside down and he leveled all human strength and wisdom. And then in our own self-reliance, we, we get enamored by our strength and by our wisdom. But at the cross, it says that God made foolish the wisdom of the world. And it doesn't matter who you are, rich or poor, strong or weak, smart or maybe you don't feel so smart, right? But the cross of Christ exposes our prideful hearts, brings us to the ground so that we can see. And that is Paul's story. Because as he told the Philippians, he said, If someone thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, that is human wisdom or human power, he says, I have more. Summarize his statement here, the next uh, verse Basically, it's like, I got a black belt in the whole Hebrew life, all right? I got a whole black belt in this thing, and I am faultless when it comes to the law. He was a shining example of human achievement, proud son of Israel. He was educated. He had power. He had authority. But did that get him closer to God? No, instead, pride consumed him. And until one day, as Saul neared Damascus on his journey, it said, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice, that is of Jesus, say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And in this moment, Jesus literally knocked Paul off his high horse, brought him to the ground, and confronted his self-reliance. And he was blinded for three days. Until a Christian named Ananias placed his hand on him and something like scales fell from his eyes and Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit. Like Paul, we can spend our whole lives trying to be strong enough, good enough, smart enough, accomplished enough. Or at least looking to other people that we think are those things. And it's one thing to just try to better ourselves and to learn and grow. But a lot of us, we pursue these things with this urgency or with this anxiety because we think that in the pursuit of them, we're hoping to find some sort of peace, fulfillment, happiness, joy, love, hope, a.k.a. some earthly salvation. This is Paul's story. This is all of our story. But Paul said, this is a fool's errand. Because he said that the world, through its wisdom and all its learning and all of its achievements and all of its advancements, did not, could not know God. That it doesn't matter how much money you have, degrees you've accumulated, how much you can bench press, all right, or how much influence you have. We all have one thing in common. 
The sin of pride blinds our hearts to think that we can save ourselves. But at the cross, Christ turned our self-reliant hearts upside down and leveled us all. At the cross, the Almighty God stepped down into weakness and humiliation. At the cross, the God of all wisdom made himself vulnerable and suffered. And if we hear this through the the, the lens of our own self-sufficiency, our own reliance, our own pride, we'll reject it because it's crazy. But if you're willing to hear, it's the power of God for those who believe. And if you long to truly understand Christ's crucified, then we got to ask why? Why? Because at the cross, it was the glory of God's humility that exposed our prideful hearts. And at the cross, it was the marvel of his grace that reaches down with forgiveness. And it was at the cross that the greatest love ever displayed calls us to our knees. It was at the cross that Christ took on our sin so that we might be declared righteous. It was at the cross that he suffered so that we might be called holy. And it was at the cross that he died a criminal's death that we might experience the redemption from sin and death. See, the message of Christ crucified is meant to come down and tear down all the artificial systems of comparison, all the place, all the ways that we've tried to level ourselves up between each other and puts us all on the same level as a forgiven, set free people. And then if you're somebody coming in here and you realize, man, you've thought really highly of yourself like Saul did or like me at the ping pong table, right? Christ crucified brings us to our knees. But if you're somebody, you're coming in here and you've only seen yourself as a loser, as a failure, as a less than, as a can't measure up, then it was at the cross that you saw that Christ came down beside you to lift you up and call you into his family. Paul said there were many among you, Corinthians, that were not wise, influential, or noble by human standards. So, but sometimes that's exactly where God can start because at least that's somebody who recognizes how much they need him. But after God in his love exposes our prideful hearts and humbles us, what then? What then? Well, Christ humbles us so that when his spirit works through us, he gets the glory. All right? And see, how do we know if the reality of Christ crucified has changed us? Well, we're no longer living for ourselves but we live to boast or make much of Jesus. And see, this is a drastic difference between Paul and all the other speakers who went through Corinth. Because much like American society, the the Greeks in Corinth, they loved a good show. And there are plenty of eloquent speakers who would come on through to give them one with all of their, their clever talk, impressive skill, even if their content was empty. But a lot of Greeks didn't care because they came for the entertainment value, not necessarily listening for the truth. But Paul says, I don't play that game. He says, I don't come here with fancy words or trying to pander to the standards of human wisdom to make my name big. He said, I resolved to make Christ and him crucified at the center of all that he said. And he modeled it in the way that he spoke. Because just physically, physically, he said, Paul wasn't much to look at. Most scholars agree that he was a pretty short dude. And 
had some health issues, most likely. And apparently, he said, he struggled with fear. I, I appreciate that. <laughs> right? Because if I was walking into a city like Corinth to share Christ, I'd be trembling too. And Paul doesn't pretend like he's bigger or better. He doesn't even try to hide or act like he wasn't weak. He doesn't overcompensate. He doesn't perform. But he realizes God can do something big. And when God does do something big through a small, sickly, not so eloquent guy, it'll be obvious that it's God's power at work, not Paul's. And so we, we can come up with all kinds of reasons why God can't or won't use us. When I was in seminary, I tried to talk myself out of going into pastoral ministry so many times. Why? Because I'm not, I'm not as smart as that guy. Or I'm not talented like that guy. Or I'm not experienced enough. And I looked at the standards of all of these different pastors that I admired. And I thought, man, I, I can't measure up to that. But you know what that was? That was self-reliance. That was pride speaking. And God says, I don't play that. In fact, pride can often latch on to the very things that do cause us to stand out. And in doing so, we end up stepping in front of Christ's glory, trying to steal a few crumbs of glory for ourselves. But the, and that's why the cross of Christ must remain daily at the center of who and whose we are. The cross is not something we just turn to at the beginning of our relationship with Jesus, but it's something we come back to over and over again. Jesus told his disciples, he said that you are to come daily to the cross. And so if it helps, I got this visual from somebody recently that, that really helps me think, of what does it mean to come daily to the cross? Well, first, before we come to the cross... Oftentimes, our attitude is, God, bless my agenda. Right? That we come to God with our expectations, with our framework, with our agenda, with our definitions of success. God, make my problems go away. God, make my struggles disappear. God, make all this bad stuff, just, just make it go away. But coming to the cross... It's very tempting to want to try to go around it. Jim Roskowski said that this morning. He, said, he told me this morning that so many times people want to try to go around the cross instead of through it. And he's exactly right. Because if we actually go to the cross, then we come just like Jesus did in saying, God, not my will, but yours. God, I'm choosing to release my standards. I'm choosing to release my self-reliance, my idea of how the world should be run. Turn my world upside down if you need to. But I'm not going to pretend, guys, like this is easy. If the cross wasn't easy for Christ, guess what? Us coming to it is not going to be easy. It's painful sometimes. It's tough. That we come to God with our wounds. We come to God with our trauma. We come to God with, with all of our expectations and our hopes and our dreams. And sometimes God says, while that may be your framework, that's not what I have for you. Right? That's not what I have for you. So we're inviting, when we come to the cross, we're inviting God to put to death in us all that's not of him so that he can shape us. And when we do that, though, the result is on the other side of that, we see the resurrection power of God begins to work through us. 
that after we stop trying to force our agenda on God and we surrender to His, that is when the very power of His Spirit can flow to and through us to accomplish that. As a result, that our faith might not rest in human wisdom, but God's power, as Paul says, and the world might see God is alive among us. But in order to get to that place, we can't go around the cross. we got to go through the cross. And sometimes that's a moment. Sometimes that's a season where we can have to say regularly, God, not my will but yours, not my will but yours, not my will but yours. But in the other side of that, we see God brings us to a place where now his spirit can move through us in power. It is at the cross that Christ leveled the playing field, leaving him as our sole confidence for salvation. Last story. There's a, there's a pastor from this area. Ironically, his name is Paul. A pastor from this area uh, named Paul who was visiting a friend in Beijing, China. And this friend uh, had just led four uh, young men to the Lord for the first time. And he decided that he was going to go to church with them. But the church was all in Mandarin, so he didn't understand any of it. And he was trying to like at least pay attention and listen to what the senior pastor was saying, but he said, to be frank, he says it was pretty boring. He said the guy was very senior. He, he spoke softly. He didn't use much emotion. He kind of hunched over, not very much expression. And he said after, after that church service, he went to lunch with the four guys, and he asked them, he said, is your pastor a good preacher? And they exclaimed, oh yes, he is a great preacher. He spent many years in prison for Jesus Christ. And there it is. God flips upside down all the standards that we think. Because we think that at the measure of a good pastor or a good preacher, well, that's eloquence. And that somebody can captivate our attention and can hold us for a while. But they said, no, no, no. The measure is in the person, is in who they are. Have they, have they, are they willing to be faithful even through suffering? Have they not gone around, but have they gone through the cross? Because that's where the power of God begins. That's when it's no longer a human work, but it's a divine work. Don't you want that? I do. I do. So in this moment, I want to create a space just for us as a church. We're going to come to the cross together. To give us a couple moments just to say, God, is there some way that I am coming to you saying, bless my agenda? Are there certain standards or expectations or certain ways I think things should be that I'm consistently holding on to? And then after you feel like you have something that has come to your mind, because oftentimes when things come to our mind in these moments, that is the Holy Spirit speaking to us. If you want to know what God's voice sounds like, that's often how it sounds. But then from that, take what you feel like he's shown you and say, God, not my will, but yours. And we're going to spend a moment in this space. Before we just get the worship team back up here, we're going to spend a moment in this space. I don't want to rush through this moment. So I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to give us a moment of silence to be able to deal with the Lord. I'm just going to lead us through this process. Lord, I thank you that all that you are doing 
Man, it does not depend on us and our strength and our power and our wisdom. It never has. God, forgive me for so many times that I've come to you with my expectations or my agenda. And that even if the things that have seemed good, God, I try to, to impose those and shape you in my image. And so, Lord, I pray that in this moment, Lord, that you, you begin to speak to us. Show us, speak to us and show us ways that perhaps we've been trying to come to you with our agenda. So why don't you just, you and God, take a moment with him right now and see what he brings to your mind. confess to you certain things that I've held as really, really important that you don't hold as important. I confess to you expectations I have for how you're supposed to work or who you're supposed to be. But now, God, together we also want to come to you and take a moment of silence, each of us, just to say, God, not my will, but yours. So in your own way, where you are, just you and God, go, through, go to the cross and say, God, not my will, but yours. possibly comprehend or understand. We know we have freedom for us in all of these areas that we thought we could never be free. But we know that oh, first it means coming to the cross, letting you do your work in us, that you might kill and leave all that is not of you, that all that is of you may remain within us. And this is a daily process for us, God. But I pray that we will consistently come to you trusting you that even if it's painful at times to confront different things within us, that you confront it for our freedom and for our good because you love us 
And you are a perfect Father who only is nurturing, nurturing and shaping us that we might walk through and see that Christ crucified is not just something we believe, but it's something that, that shapes who we are. So God, now fill us with your Spirit. Fill us with fresh faith and trust in you and in your power. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.